0: This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, before we get started, there are some uh, things I have to confess to you that I hope you can be gracious with me about. First, any NFL fans in here? Any NFL fans? Anybody think the NFL is just a bunch of expensive concussions? Anybody else thinks the NFL is dumb? Well, I'm a big NFL fan, and in particular, I'm a big Steelers fan. Mm. So now we have that out of the way. Uh, But uh, I love you guys. I don't know you guys. Uh, I'm part of the same church as you, a part of Redemption. And I need to confess to you that when I got the the call that was like, hey, can you preach at Peoria, my first thought was like, can I skip to 10.45 because the Steelers played 11? You know, it's playoffs, first first NFL playoff weekend, and so like I had to really work through that for about 10 minutes before I was like, fine, yes, I'll do it. So, so just so you guys know, that is how much I love you. I love you more than the Steelers' first playoff game, but um, thank you. That deserves a round of applause. Um, it's okay, though, because we'll have four more playoff games, so it'll be fine. It will be fine. I will see other ones. I'll, I'll be good. Uh, And so I grew up on the east side, so I'm not much of a west sider uh, person. I grew up um, at Grace Community Church, which is in Tempe. My parents became Christians there uh, before I was born, and I grew up going to that church um, my whole life. And that church is actually celebrating their 50th anniversary today. That's kind of a crazy thing, a church that lasts for 50 years and does faithful ministry for that long a time. And that church actually is connected to this church, and here's how, more than just me being here, is that... Tom Schrader, who was the lead pastor of East Valley Bible Church for a long time, got his first start teaching the Bible at a small uh, classroom at Grace. And then out of that, he went to Bethany. Then he planted East Valley Bible Church. East Valley Bible Church eventually became Redemption Gilbert, which is now one of our sister congregations. And so it's kind of what you see. There's kind of like this little movement and history and how things move. And my parents actually, um, before they grew to, uh, went to the east side, lived on the west side. They went to Alhambra High School back when it was like one of the only high schools out here. Um, my grandma was on the west side, and so I'm kind of from the west side, but then I moved to the east side, and now um, I'm going out to like pretty much North Florence, Queen Creek is where I'm on staff, is Gateway. I don't know if you guys know where that is, but it's a little bit far away. I grew up in Tempe, and now I'm working in uh, Queen Creek. I've only been on staff there like three months. And so even, so kind of what I'm doing right now is I'm talking about where my parents, the house I grew up in, the church I grew up in. Kind of when you tell someone's story, you start at the beginning, and that's what you do on a first date. You go, okay, well, tell me about the household you grew up in. Tell me about your father or lack thereof. Tell me about your mother or lack thereof. Tell me about how you grew up. Because where you began has a lot to do with where you're headed and a lot to do with why you are the way you are. And that's one of the reasons why I'm super excited today to be able to kick off the book of Acts. Um, in the Reformation, about 1500s, a guy uh, named Erasmus coined a term that kind of started the Enlightenment, the um, Reformation, and a whole like this re- re- resurgence of cultural flourishing. And the phrase was ad fontes, which means back to the sources or back to the foundation. And so the church and the society for a long time had been becoming more and more shaped by tradition than shaped by the sources or the beginnings or the fountain of that is the scriptures. And we as a church, both this Peoria congregation and the larger Redemption Church is committed to being a church that is committed to the source of our faith. The fact that we are a people who are part of a people that are a movement of God that began 2,000 years ago in the first century. We have a word for innovation when it comes to theology and it's called heresy. We shouldn't be doing it. It's not right. And so very much we as a church, what it means to be faithful, means to be submitting ourselves up under the scriptures. And so regardless of who's preaching, regardless of who the lead pastor is, regardless of who the elders are, regardless of whether you're here or you slept in or you're watching the Steelers game, the church is shaped by and given its identity through the scriptures, and I hope that in the season of transition that you all are in as a church, um, as different people preach each week for a little while, uh, next week you get to hear from Aaron Daly, I think, uh, what unifies us is the fact that the scriptures, that God has spoken to us and we're submitting ourselves to them collectively, that uh, we as a church are committed to preaching the scriptures, being shaped by the scriptures, and that if people sit up here and give their opinions, hopefully you'll go to a different church. That's not what we're all about. So back to the sources, to the movement that Jesus began 2,000 years ago. Um, I'm going to preach through Acts 1, 1 through 11, and just kind of walk through the text. And hopefully you'll trace with me and follow with me. And then uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in and uh, submit ourselves to the source of our faith that is the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the hurting people here, people who are far from you, people who have their hearts hardened to you that you would soften us. That the suffering that people are enduring would soften them, not harden them. We're thankful that you've spoken to us through your word and that you're speaking to us now as your spirit translates that word to our souls. I pray that we as a church can be encouraged by our scriptures and that we as a people will walk out of here different than how we walked in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm just going to walk through this, and so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts 1 with me, and you can kind of follow along as I go. Acts 1, 1. In the first book, O Theophilus. So Theophilus might be a person, but it also might be like a stand-in figure. Theophilus is the squishing together of two Greek words, God and love, like like Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Theophilus. Uh, so it could be just lover of God, it could be a real person, we're not totally sure. Um, so in the first book, O oh God-lover, so it could be addressed to us, but it might be addressed to a person named that, um, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This idea of began is crucial. The word in um, Greek most literally is Arco, from which we get the word archaeology, or foundation, the beginning, the source, the, the foundation we're standing on. A lot of times we think that Jesus did something, and now we as a church are doing something, and that's the wrong way of looking at it. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he simultaneously finished something and started something. Let me explain that. So Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, what does he say on the cross? It is finished. He accomplished redemption. He purchased our salvation. The penalty that we were due to God, he paid in full on the cross. We cannot take away from it. We cannot add to it. It is paid in full. The stamp, the receipt is issued. We as a people have our salvation, our justification, our redemption purchased and accomplished. So in one sense, Jesus finished something. He finished the work of paying the penalty for the sin that we have all accrued. On the other hand, he only started something. And that thing that he started is a movement of people over the last 2,000 years. where people preaching the good news, being agents of good news, representing the good news to the whole world. And Jesus started something. He began a work in and through the church that is now being carried through, through us. So even though Peoria celebrates its two-year anniversary in uh, a month, Peoria is not a new thing. It's an old thing. Peoria came from a church that was planted out of, which came out of a church that was planted out of, which was trained by someone who was trained by someone who's trained by someone. And if we did the work and we had the free time, which none of us probably do, and traced it all the way back, we could find the way that we linked it all the way back to the time when someone became a Christian in the preaching of the word in the book of Acts. And so Peoria is a new thing, but it's an old thing. Because Jesus began something, and he's still doing something in and through us. If you ever hear about people innovating doctrines or saying nobody's doing it right besides us, that's one of the markers of a cult, is you can't get anywhere else but here. There are lots of churches all over the world that are preaching the gospel. We're in partnership with them, not in competition with them, that God's word is public property. It doesn't just belong to a certain cult of people. And we as a church are part of that movement of God. Do you see yourself as part of that movement of God? Or do when you read Book of Acts, you see something that happened and finished a long time ago? Because the Book of Acts ends pretty weird. It ends open-ended. It's kind of a non-ending ending. ending. It ends, but it continues, and it continues here. So no matter who's preaching, who's the elder, whatever's going on, Jesus is continuing to work. So Luke is a story of what Jesus began to do. The Book of Acts is a story of what Jesus continues to do in and through his church, and in and through us, even like that. All that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, resurrected, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering. So the book of Acts was written after all that happened in Acts took place. It could be really clear, but it may not be really clear. They didn't write it along the way. They wrote it afterwards. book of Acts takes place over 30 years, and it kind of ends up being a book about suffering. These people who are witnessing to the gospel and are suffering because of it. People who are saying, Caesar's not king, Jesus is king, and they're suffering because of it. This is an encouragement to them. Remind yourself that you're following the suffering servant, not a comfortable king. The suffering that you're enduring is not in vain. Because you're following someone who promised you'd suffer, who suffered himself, and is suffering along with you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are barely even beginning to get a taste of that here in the West. We've been in this privileged position for so long. Being forced to bake a cake for a wedding you didn't want to bake is nothing compared to what they're dealing with in the first century. But it's coming. Our culture is increasingly becoming less tolerant Of Christian doctrines in particular sexual ethics the question you have to ask yourself if you want to be a follower of Jesus right in the very first verses is that remember we're following the guy who suffered is that something you're prepared to do yet there's a whole movement of Christians now who are editing out parts of Scripture not literally but figuratively saying we don't like what that's saying take it out We're just going to be blanket love. We're not going to say anything that's offensive. And we're just going to only preach the same love your neighbor verse and not really flesh out in terms of what it looks like because whatever you feel it looks like looks right for you. Augustine said in the fourth century, so this is not a new problem, in the fourth century, he said, if you only believe parts of the gospels, it's yourself you believe, not Jesus. Jesus. We follow a suffering servant, and we submit our whole selves to the source, his word. And you have to ask yourself this question as we begin Acts. Am I a part of this people? And if so, I will be called to suffer for my faith. After his suffering by many proofs, proofs, means evidence. Even the word witness that we see later is someone who's testifying to facts, a legal courtroom setting. You get on the stand and you say, so help me God, this is the truth. And so Jesus is giving proofs which should kind of bend our categories a little bit. A a lot of times I think about apologetics in the Christian calendar, and apologetics is answering hard questions. So someone has a hard question about the faith, someone who studies apologetics studies how to answer those hard questions. And a lot of times there's like a handful of people in the church who study apologetics and a bunch of other people who aren't really interested. And that's mostly fine, but I want us to challenge a little thinking here, is that a lot of times we think about faith in terms of this childlike faith. Childlike faith, we assume that it's like this comfortable naivety. You know, I remember kind of growing up in the church and having lots of questions and kind of being rebuked, like, have childlike faith. And, I, and like what they interpreted that to mean was, stop asking questions, just believe. But if you've had kids for like three and a half minutes, you know that all kids do is ask lots of questions. They ask questions. Why do, they ask, why do kids ask tons of questions? One key reason is because they have parents that they still believe know everything. Why do planes work? Why does this happen? Why does this happen? And so kids are asking all these questions because of their faith in their parents. And so childlike faith is not comfortable naivety, but rather it's trust with questioning. And so you might not be a Christian here, you might question, you might have all these things that you think don't have answers to them, and I want you to kind of wrestle with the fact that the church has not thought up new questions in the last 2,000 years, but rather the church has been answering these questions faithfully for thousands of years. And so you might be in a position, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not, in comfortable naivety, but Jesus presents proof to his disciples he does his work he does his research he shows them the scars and we as christians need to be people who are following the suffering servant who does his homework and gives proof so maybe you haven't studied apologetics maybe you haven't wrestled with hard questions but what i do want to say is shame on us as a church if we if we seek to quelch people's questions because questions are symbolic and demonstrations of childlike faith so people come in questioning the faith with difficult questions. They want to know answers. We need to encourage that and seek for answers on their behalf, not tell them just believe and be quiet. Jesus suffers and gives proof for the, for the gospel. That takes work. No one becomes good at apologetics listening to one sermon. I didn't really have this, this real desire to really learn the scriptures until I went to college at ASU and I had all these non-Christians all around me. And I recognized that me preparing myself and studying the scriptures and looking for answers for the questions that I had enabled me to become a faithful evangelist to my friends. There are lost people all around you looking for proof. And if we as a church, if we as Redemption do the work... God will give us the opportunity to present the proof, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Forty days is a s- symbolic number; that's probably actually forty days, but it kind of reminds us of preparation. Uh, you know, Jesus is in the wilderness forty days, being prepared by the Holy Spirit for His ministry, and now um, after His resurrection, Jesus is with the disciples forty days, going through like super seminary training, preparing for the coming of the Spirit, preparing for their ministry. So Jesus spent 40 days in the desert preparing. Now Jesus is having his disciples spend 40 days. After he's risen, they probably have all these other questions that he's answering, and they're doing lots of Bible study together, and it's super great, and they're getting equipped. And while staying with them to be ordered, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. So the word staying there, if you have an ESV, there's a footnote there that says, or eating. It's a Greek idiom that means, or breaking salt with them. This is significant for two reasons. One, Jesus, before he died at the Passover supper, said, I will not partake of eating until the kingdom comes. So then, what we have here is a picture of Jesus eating, therefore the kingdom has come. Sometimes we think of the kingdom as this thing that's way far off, that's coming sometime, that's not here yet. But what Jesus is teaching us is that in his presence, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom is there. It's not fully there, but it's there. Secondly, a lot of times we think about um, our resurrection and our after-death life as being this disembodied floating around thing, but Jesus in the flesh is eating with them. So our, our eternal state is not disembodied floating around in space somewhere, but it's actually embodied, enjoying creation, and being a people who are eating and drinking together. And while breaking salt with them, while eating with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this promise of the Father goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God first chooses a people to himself and he says, I will bless you and through you all the nations will be blessed. So this promise of the Father is the promise, the primary promise, the first promise, the promise that the whole earth will be blessed through the activity of the people of God. And so Jesus is saying, wait, something's about to happen, the promise of the Father is about to be fulfilled the thing that Israel messed up for thousands of years, now Israel's is going to be restored by the Holy Spirit and they're actually going to be a blessing to all the nations. The vehicle of God's blessing, Israel, is about to happen. And he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. So a key passage here for us to keep in mind is Luke three sixteen and 17. I have this up on the screen. Luke 3, 16 and 17. Um, This is John the Baptist who prepared a way for Jesus. John the Baptist says this. He says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is talking about Jesus, just to be clear. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus coming just as John prepared a way for Jesus, now Jesus, in a sense, his ministry was preparing a way for the Holy Spirit to fulfill the promise of the Father. So baptize literally means dunk or immerse or dip. Um, it has to do with an immersion. So baptize is actually not a translation, it's a transliteration. And what, it, what it's talking about is, uh, like a translation would be immerse or dip. But because they transliterated it, the word in Greek is baptizo means immerse or dunk. And this word actually comes from textile work. So like uh, clothes and fabrics and things like that to the point where if I took a piece of wool, I would baptize it in purple and it would come out obviously purple. If I said, this is baptized, I could look at it and tell, is it purple, is it not purple? Bill Clem said this. He said, the emphasis on baptism is not the process but the outcome. When something or someone was baptized, it would have been visibly obvious. So kind of the debates about like, uh, how do you do it? On what day of the week do you do it? All those are important and valuable because the church history for a long time has thought them important and valuable. But the point here is that you will be changed. You'll go from not purple to purple. Question for you Christians, if someone saw you, would they be able to say, oh, Seth, he's clearly baptized in the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Is it all over me? Is it all over you? Most of the time, it's not all over me. The point of this baptism of the Spirit is that you're changed. Not purple, now you're purple. Not fruit of the Spirit, now you have this fruit of the Spirit. And here's one of the tragedies. is Jesus says, wait, do not depart. Don't go out. Which is crazy to me. If I, like, think about like a pastor's resume. And I said... I did my undergrad in three years at Jesus University. You know, like, I walked with him. I stayed with him. You know, 70 hours a week, I walked with him. He taught me the scriptures. I taught him, like, we, we had Bible study discussions, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We, like, picture, like, the best undergrad Bible college you could think of. And then say, I finished it in three years instead of four, and Jesus was my teacher. And then... Where'd you do your post grad work? Well, after that, I spent 40 days with Jesus, 12 hours a day, studying the scriptures again. That's my graduate school. That's my master of divinity. That's where I went to seminary. And then Jesus goes, Wait, you're not ready. Well, what more do I have to do? (laughs) I know all the stuff. I've done all the Bible studies. I'm waiting. What's the. Jesus says, Wait. I've seen a lot of people who have yet to be marked by the Holy Spirit, trying to do ministry. And it hurts more people than it helps people. I remember being at ASU and there's guys holding up the signs that say, you know, masturbators go to hell, repent and believe now. And I remember thinking like, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, nope. You're not marked in the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get to participate in the work of the Spirit's ministry. So Jesus says, Wait. You have the right information, you know your Bibles, but until you're marked in the Spirit, you're not ready. We hate waiting as a people. Jim Gaffigan's one of my favorite stand-up comedians. He's talking about going out to a nice dinner with his wife and how like he's ruined now because of fast food. He opens up the menu, the candle's lit, and the waiter comes over and he's very kind and he goes, I'll have the double cheeseburger, where is it? <laughs> We forgot how to wait as a people because of the the quickness and the speed of things. When Jesus says, wait, we go, wait a minute. You wait. I'm ready. What are you talking about? Wait, Jesus says. You don't have the spirit yet. You don't have the power yet. You're not baptized yet. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's coming. And they are good Bible students. They look back and go, the prophets foretold that when the Holy Spirit comes, Israel will be made great again. But they're missing the point here. They're saying, we've been oppressed by the Romans for a long time. We're kind of sick of being oppressed by the Romans. We're excited. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel. Not will you equip Israel to do its mission now, but will you make Israel great again, make the kingdom of Israel great. And they're missing the point of Israel's whole purpose. Israel is to be a light to the nations, a vehicle of God's blessing, not an end in and of itself. God didn't elect Israel so they, him and Israel could be close and buddies and then till the end. He elected Israel so that they'd be a vehicle of mission to God's, to the unreached peoples. They're blessed to be a blessing. So will they make restore the kingdom to Israel is kind of the right question because the Spirit's coming, but it's also kind of the wrong question. What they should have been asking is, will Israel now be a blessing to all the nations? And so Jesus, this good teacher, hold on, pause right there. The disciples' nationalism interferes with their mission. The nationalistic vision interferes with the mission they're called to be on. The church has the same issue now. Sit with that. Us first, maybe others later, but probably not. We're ready to be in position of authority again. We're ready for the power again. Make Israel great again. Don't let America get in the way of the mission of the church. That's idolatry, and it's not the point. If God blesses America, it's so that we can be a blessing to everyone else, not turn inwards. On an individual level, your household might have that problem too. If your household's blessed, it's so you can be a blessing to other households. If you're blessed, it's so you can be a blessing to other individuals. The pursuit of comfort and status and power are not ends in of themselves. And if you have them, it's so that you can share them. Jesus, as good teacher, says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Why are you obsessed with political authority and power? The Father has the authority. Calm down. But you will receive power. So you guys are looking for power, you're going to get power. But here's the catch, is the power you're looking for is a little different than the power you're going to get. You want this political power, you're ready for Rome to not be a thing, and for Israel to be great and over Rome. But I am going to give you power, but it's the power that you should be wanting. It's the power to bless the nations. Power has to do with ability or capacity. There's a definition up there for power. Um, Power is... The way when God breaks into our life, um, the word is dunamis. It means ability or the capacity for us to move forward, potential, ability, strength, or force. So rather than that's like political status or political power, it's this ability to get things done and move things forward. So what Jesus says is, you will receive. Power when the Holy Spirits come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So I'm not just going to build Israel up so that they are great. I'm going to squish Israel out so they go out and reach the whole ends of the earth. That is the power I'm giving to you. Not necessarily the power to write and change law. Not necessarily the power to have a lot of influence over culture. The power I'm giving you corresponds with your ability to witness to the gospel. You will be my witnesses. A question I have to wrestle with is when Jesus says, wait, you don't have power yet. Wait, you're powerless. And Jesus looks me in the eye and says, Seth, you're powerless. Do I agree with him or do I think I kind of have some power? I'm doing the Paul Tripp devotional thing each morning with my wife. And Paul Tripp says this about power. Um, Can you go back one slide? I need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit living inside me because sin kidnaps the desires of my heart, blinds my eyes, and weakens my knees. My problem is not just the guilt of sin, it's the inability, so the non-power. Power power is ability. It's the inability of sin as well. So God graces His children with the convicting, sight-giving, desire-producing, and strength-affording presence of the spirit. I tend to think that I am semi able and with the Holy Spirit I can be a little more able. But in reality is I am unable and with the Holy Spirit I am fully able. It's so easy for us as Christians to put confidence in our Bible knowledge, confidence in our fake smiles, confidence in my ability to greet people at the door, confidence in my ability to stand up here and be clear. But nothing that we do in any capacity has the capacity to translate the message of the gospel to someone's heart, to enable them towards life change and following after Jesus besides the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Conversely, if you are shaking hands at the door and serving as a greeter and playing in the band or preaching a sermon or making Excel spreadsheets, if that is cloaked and baptized in the power and the ability of the Holy Spirit, God can use all of those things to change hearts and lives. Do not minimize any activity you do filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, cloaked in the fruits of the Spirit, because God can use any of that to change lives. You're greeter at the front door, you're baptized in the spirit, cloaked in the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, welcoming someone to church who has not been to church in years, was hurt by the church last time they were there, and doubts whether God's going to do anything. And just a greeter at the front door, learning a name and a face, Bathed in the Holy Spirit can be a disarming measure that God uses to teach that person that God loves them as an individual and that he can change their life by the present work of the Holy Spirit. Whether it's preaching or serving as a greeter or being a small group leader or whatever it is, you are unable to change hearts with the Holy Spirit and you are absolutely able to participate in God working restoration in people's lives with the power of the Holy Spirit do you actually think you're powerless without the Holy Spirit ask yourself am I scale of 0 to 10 how powerful am I without the Holy Spirit if your answer is not 0 you have repenting to do Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's the outline of the book of Acts. At the end of Acts, Paul is in Rome preaching the gospel. All roads lead to Rome. Rome is the center of influence over the world. If we get the gospel to Rome, then the gospel can get everywhere. It's kind of like if you get it to nowadays, like if you lead all the New York Times authors to Christ, it's going to get read and people are going to hear the gospel. Similarly, the ends of the earth was Rome. So the book of Acts, in one sense, gets the gospel to the end of the earth because it gets it to Rome, and Rome was, they saw it as being connected to the whole earth. In another sense, we're still doing that. The ends of the earth have yet to be reached. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now be honest, that's weird. That's very weird to me. I hear that, and I think Jesus floating up in the clouds. And I go, how am I going to explain that to my non-Christian friends? (laughs) Yeah, and then he floated in the sky. Okay, you know. The other week, uh, or a couple, uh, probably like, like six months ago, I met someone who believed that the earth was flat. And my whole face was just like, don't say anything because you're going to be not nice if you say something. You know, like, so, and then, like, afterwards, I was thinking, like, non-Christians essentially think, I think the earth is flat. I think people rise from the dead and float up into the sky. No matter how intellectual I am, even if I tell people I speak Greek and Hebrew and know history pretty well, they're gonna still go, and you think zombies are real? Get out of my living room. The other week I was getting my hair cut, and the barber made this comment. He's like, Oh, you go, what do you do for work? I said, Oh, my pastor at redemption, and he goes, Oh, it seems like all the cool pastors go to redemption. And I really liked that. I just really liked it. <laughs> I think like, oh, you know. I mean, don't stop. I mean, keep going. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, so, and I, and I, over the next couple of days, I started realizing the idolatry of just wanting people to like me, think I'm smart, think I'm intelligent, think I'm not one of those weird Christians, whatever that means. And how badly I want non-Christian Barbara to think I'm a cool guy. And then I read passages like the Ascension and I'm confronted with how weird that is, especially in our secular society we live in, that the miraculous is miraculous. And if the tomb is empty and God is real, whatever the miracle is, it's not a bigger deal than the fact that someone was dead and they came back to life. The question I have to ask myself is, how badly do I want to be liked? How badly do I want people to respect me as an intellectual, as an educated person, because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, says Paul in 1 Corinthians. Have you wrestled with that? as an individual, that the Bible teaches things that to my society looks weird, naive, and stupid. And I believe it because back to the sources, this is my authority. On an individual level, maybe you're 10, maybe you're 70. Because believing things that the world thinks is crazy is part of being a faithful Christian. Recognize that. This is just one of the things I had to wrestle with this week. Like, the ascension seems weird, and I believe it, because the scriptures teach it. Now, the reason he ascended was because in Daniel 7, there's a prophecy of how the Son of Man was going to be taken up to the Father on a chariot of clouds. And the beautiful thing about this is what it teaches, is that um, you have these people, and Jesus goes up in the flesh... So a lot of times we think about Christianity as escaping the body or escaping the world. But in reality, Jesus keeps his body and goes up to heaven. So the Christian vision for our future is not disembodied, floating around in space, but it's embodied, present in the creation. The next verse here. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. And these angels said, and he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which I think is like the dumbest question ever. They just think like, Uh, Someone just floated up there. Give me five minutes to process through that. That's an intense thing, and you're sitting there, you see,